Healthcare is rapidly changing. Innovative technologies and new treatment paradigms are changing the way we tackle the world's pervasive health issues. I'm Alex Godin with Oxner Health in New Orleans, Louisiana. Join me as we go inside Louisiana's largest healthcare system, where we discuss new ideas in confronting these healthcare challenges. We talk to thought leaders and healthcare experts to explore the latest innovations in patient care. Welcome to Innovation Health. Today on Innovation Health, we talk with Dr. Leonardo Swani, Senior Vice President, Chief Academic Officer, and Professor of Medicine here at Oxner. We take a deeper dive into the latest research on COVID-19, talking through the variants, vaccines, boosters, and the future of the pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Swani. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I want to kick things off um, because I really think you have one of the most interesting roles here at Oxner um, and have you describe to everyone what you oversee, kind of what a day in your life here at Oxner looks like. I'm glad you think my role is interesting. I tell <laughs> Warner that all the time. I have the coolest job at Oxner. So I am responsible, as the chief academic officer, I'm responsible for all of the education programs at Osher, which include over 31 ACGME accredited programs, over 300 residents and fellows at Osher. Uh, remember, residents and fellows are doctors that have graduated med school and now are doing their subspecialty training. And then it also includes our partnership with the University of Queensland, and that's the Oxford Clinical School, which is about 400 medical students. These are Americans that go spend their first two years of training in Brisbane, Australia, at the University of Queensland, and return and do years three and four here at Oxner as part of the Oxner cohort. Um, and so we're very proud of those students. Uh, they've been through a lot with the pandemic and the hurricanes, but they match a 97% uh, match rate last year, which is higher than the average U.S. medical school, and match in incredible programs and specialties like Duke neurosurgery uh, and orthopedics here at Oxford. So proud of those students, and I oversee that. But I also oversee the research arm mm -hmm. at Oxford. Uh, and so we have... Uh, five centers of excellence of research uh, around our clinical centers of excellence, neuroscience, um, medical specialties. We have them in pediatrics and women's uh, cancer. Um, so that's another big part of what we do at Osher. We, we add to the science and the knowledge um, by doing clinical trials and by also leveraging big data. Uh, you know, Osher with Epic, uh, we're in a unique position to leverage data to answer clinical questions. So we have a whole department of outcomes research that looks at that, and they've done a lot of work with COVID. Uh, that outcomes research team is the one that developed the, uh, well, came up with the study that was published in the New England Journal, which was the first study in the world that showed that there was a disparate burden of COVID-19 on the African-American population in the United States. Um, so that's the kind of impactful work mm -hmm. we do at Osher with data and clinical trials. And I think that's so interesting too, because for the, a lot of people or the average person, me included, kind of when you think of a hospital or a health brand, a health entity like Oxner, you're kind of just thinking in the forefront of your mind, going in, sick patients, taking care of people, the ICU, the surgery. And there's actually so much more happening within the system in terms of you know, medical education and research. And it's a really large yeah. part that, you know, some people might not realize is happening every day here at Oxner. It's a huge differentiator for us. Uh, you know, I like to say we're an independent academic medical center. That's, that's our official title. I like to say we're a learning institution, 
meaning we're constantly striving to learn and be better. Uh, and you do that by having people in a culture that promotes that type of curiosity of, mm-hmm. and making observations and then saying, oh, I've, I've made this observation uh, like we were having a disproportionate amount of African-Americans in the first surge with COVID-19. Now let me go see and, and learn about that and see if that's true and what can we learn about that. And we learned quite a lot about social determinants of health and why that was because we're a learning institution. And, and things like that that really can shape and impact the way you approach healthcare and, and the future state of those things. Um, so just really amazing work there. I want to jump into talking about COVID nineteen now. Um, of course, we're in our fourth surge. It's been unfortunately, a, I, I guess, two years now, one year um, into the pandemic. Um, it's about eighteen months, but it does feel does like feel <laughs> feels like a lifetime. And I'm sure you know our frontline workers are exhausted. I want to ask, what does it mean um, for a virus like this to have variants? You know, we keep hearing all of, going through the Greek alphabet here. We have Delta. Yeah. I hear about Lambda or Mu. Yeah. You know, what does that mean? And why is it changing? What is a variant? Yeah, you know, there's good news and bad news on the mutation front for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the virus that causes mm-hmm. COVID-19. You know, I think the, the good news is that all viruses mutate. This is what they do. Uh, they, they, will, they will try to evolve and, and gain an advantage to be more infectious. And as our immune system puts up barriers to fight the virus, they will kind of try to develop ways to evolve and, and, and um, sideswipe our, our defenses. That's what they do. Uh, the good news here with, with SARS-CoV-2 uh, is that it is not it doesn't mutate as a high rate as other viruses. Okay. Uh, not even as influenza. Influenza we know has major drifts uh, and shifts in its genetics, so that you know, every few years you have a huge flu season. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a more stable virus, but it still does mutate, and it's still constantly looking to break through the defenses of humans. And so these variants are ways where the selective pressure that is put on this virus um, by our defenses uh, are ways that it's trying to change to to beat those defenses. So there are concerning uh, and there are variants of concern. In fact, the CDC has a, a, a program where it looks throughout the United States. We're part of that. Uh, Oxford, in partnership with LSU Health Science Center in New Orleans, actually does genomic screening okay. of the the viruses. So if you would go and get tested at an Oxford facility and you were positive, chances are that, that your sample of virus might be sequenced and go into this national database for the CDC so that we can, we can keep track of how it is changing and mutating. Luckily to date, uh, Delta is the only variant of concern in the United States. Um, But we are monitoring multiple variants. Uh, But Delta really is kind of the king of variants right now. It's 99% of all of the positive samples in the United States are Delta. Wow. So So how does something like that impact, you know, ongoing research? Does it have any sort of effect when you keep having new variants? So say you've been studying this specific variant of the virus, and suddenly there's a new one. Does that kind of interfere with the research process? Is it just more to add on to it? Yeah, well, I think there's, uh, when you look at the types of variants, I think when they're just small mutations, Mm -hmm. uh, 
we don't really think that's plays a big impact on the virus whatsoever. And we see these small mutations constantly. But then when you see a big mutation, especially in something like the spike protein, which is where our immune defense fights the virus, mm -hmm. we fight it at the spike protein. Uh, when you see a mutation there, then that does raise our interest. And on the research standpoint, what we try to do, uh, and there's a huge global effort for this, and the United States is one of the leaders, is what we try to do then is say, is it a significant? It looks alarming when we look at the mm -hmm. genomic sequence, but clinically, is it really significant? And that's actually what we've seen and the research is around that, where we do a lot of testing, you know, to see at least first in the lab, does it really help evade the immune response, the antibodies that we form? And then we follow it clinically. And, and so it just, you know, it just makes it more interesting mm -hmm. and it keeps us on our toes because we have to constantly do this surveillance. But, but I'm proud that the U.S. now has a very strong surveillance program led by the CDC to monitor this. And I'm proud that Oxner is part of that program. So you mentioned um, earlier talking about the work Oxner does with big data and how we can use that in research. Are we doing anything like that to maybe project when surges will happen or where they will happen? Yeah, early on we started, we, we leveraged our expertise in data scientists, Dan Ford uh, in particular, uh, um, should be recognized for his great work. Um, we took uh, the University of Pennsylvania model, which is a standard model that monitors outbreaks of viruses in, in a population, and we kind of modified it and adjusted it for the Austrian population and kind of made it, you know, Louisiana regional centric. And we found with the first surge, it was a very predictive model of hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. uh, and as community spread goes, hospitalizations go. So we were able to also kind of get an idea of how it was spreading in the community. Um, so we leveraged that data. We've now done that for all four surges. The model has held up and has been a very predictive. It helped uh, operations and the, the doctors and administrators know how many ICU beds we'll need, how many hospital beds we'll need. When is the surge peak? I'm glad to say Delta has peaked in Louisiana oh, and good. when it's going down. So that's the kind of you know, power of data scientists in your organization and work that an outcomes research team can do. And one of them is the COVID modeling. And two, kind of, I'm sure you guys work closely or collaborative, collaboratively with our community leaders even, or you know, the governor, the legislators, to be aware of this data and yeah. aware of you know, how to prepare and have the proper resources. Yeah, early, with the first surge, when we found the, the power of the model and how predictive it was, we've been sharing it ever since, not just with the, the parish leaders of Orleans and Jefferson, um, but also with the state, the LDH and the governor's office. So we're gonna get more, more into detail about vaccines in a bit, but I kind of want to ask first before we move into that um, about vaccine trials. And obviously, you know, we've had those ongoing for a while. Um, how do they follow the trials with these new variants? So say they're following a certain population that's been vaccinated. You know, do they, how do they find ways to test its efficacy on a new variant? Well, you know, the vaccines have now been around, the trials started actually late last summer, so they've been around over a year the, uh, and had their approval in December of, of 2020. Um, what we've seen with the Delta variant is we're starting to see breakthrough cases. Most of that is done through large surveillance programs, uh, especially in Israel and the United Kingdom and Great okay. Britain. 
Uh, so we learned the most about how this vaccine is impacted by these new variants, by these large surveillance programs, and they have very good public health systems. But there's also a, a great trial called the SIREN trial, S-I-R-E-N, out of Great Britain, mm-hmm. that has been following healthcare workers that have volunteered to be tested on a regular basis, both immunized, non-immunized, um, for now over a year, again looking at does immunity wane? What's the impact of these variants on, on, their, on their clinical trials? And so that's how we've been doing this by these large surveillance programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the U.S., what we've been looking and, and, and really focusing on are the boosters. Uh, and Oshner was part of the booster trial as we were part of the original uh, Pfizer uh, phase 2-3 trial um, vaccine trial. We were also part of the original Johnson & Johnson phase uh, two, three vaccine trial. And what we've been doing uh, with those uh, uh, is now as the boosters rolled out and we wanted data on the boosters, we also participated in rolling people and getting a booster shot to see if it would make the immunity last longer. And mm-hmm. obviously that is what the data is showing, that, that a third shot uh, six months out when you finish the first two shots does re-energize your immune system and and then get your antibodies level up higher and then protect you more. I want to talk about just kind of the basics of a booster shot as we move into this conversation. Um, is that just a third dose of the same vaccine people already received? Is it different in any way? What exactly is yeah. it? That's a great question. Currently, it is just a third dose, same dose as that first and second shot of Pfizer that you received if you got the Pfizer vaccine. It's just a supplemental uh, same type of vaccine. They haven't changed the vaccine at all, same dose. And we find that it boosts your immune response. That's why it's called a booster. Um, and allows you to be protected against Delta. That's okay. what the data shows. Uh, so it gets your protection against de- Delta closer to the 94% of the mm-hmm. original uh, vaccine efficacy. Um Others are looking, like Moderna, is looking at a reduced dosage. Mm -hmm. But again, it would be the same vaccine maybe, but they may need a less dose to get you that same boost of your immune system. And then we are, as you alluded to earlier in in your uh, question, we are monitoring large shifts in variants. Mm -hmm. And so if a variant ever came along that really had changed its spike protein enough to where the vaccines weren't effective, we do now have the capability uh, through the successful RNA vaccines to quickly shift and adjust and create a new vaccine that would target that super variant more closely. Luckily, that's not the case. We don't have yeah, a variant. I was going to ask, how likely is that at this point? Is there any research indicating yeah, that that's a strong there's no, possibility? There's no, re- there's no variants out there. There's been a lot of talk of variants, you know, mm-hmm. the Mu, the Kappa. There's the a, whole Greek alphabet. Yeah, that's what you see now. <laughs> Greek alphabet, but that really the truth is none of them have clinically posed a significant okay. uh, threat. Uh, Delta is the only one uh, that really has changed the way, and that's because it's so infectious. Mm-hmm. Not so much because it's so great at eluding our immunity, really more because it's just so infectious. Uh, some studies showing 100 times more infectious than the original uh, COVID virus uh, of uh, in the United States. Wow. And the case data certainly shows it when you, you know, look at the yes. charts, that line just spikes on up. So, that's right. Uh, so, so luckily, no. How likely this is? I mean, that's, 
that's that is the magic question. I think what concerns me is that there are trillions upon trillions of viral copies out there in the world, uh, and just by chance, uh, when you get into that many viral particles, that there may be a mutation that that would elude immunity and require a a totally new vaccine. So I think the sooner we get to herd immunity via vaccination, not just in the United States, but global, Mm -hmm. the sooner we get more immunity in 70 to 80% of the world, then the much less likely that a variant like that um, will rear its ugly head. Do you ever think we'll get to a point where we're having to tweak the vaccine instead of just use the same one and kind of it would change over time? Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I think it's possible. I'm. I'm praying not. I'm mm-hmm. praying that we will get uh, people vaccinated in the United States and get uh, closer to herd immunity. And I think we will have a global effort and get people in developing countries, and and that we don't get to that point. But I think it's very plausible. I like that you mentioned global effort because that's something I always think is interesting as well. When you look at the development of the vaccines or the booster, is the way kind of. The greatest minds from across the world all came together working on this, you know, singular goal, this one, you know, kind of piece of research here. Is that kind of unique for the world of research and academics, or is that just a global kind of industry itself? Uh, I would say that this was, you know, scientists are collaborators by nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and the most successful, you know, researchers really are, are good collaborators. Um so I think that is not new. Uh, I think the the amazing thing about the research around COVID-19 is how advanced we've become with our science. That, that was something that if I would have told you 10 years ago, we could have a new virus and we would develop a vaccine for it and do clinical trials and prove that it's effective in mm-hmm. less than a year, every scientist would have said I was crazy. And the fact that we did that is really a moonshot. It is, it, is, it is the same effort of us going to the moon in the 60s with the technology we had available in the 60s. It's the same type of effort. And so it, it really speaks to how advanced science has come and, and how sophisticated we are that we could do that. And obviously speaks to the hard work and dedication of those scientists. And it really is incredible. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, at the same time, I feel like there are people out there who that actually made them question kind of the vaccine, the the speed at which it was yeah. developed. And, and we know that it's because of certain, you know, collaboration and other processes, but can you explain how we, they were able to accomplish that? Yeah, I think the first part of that question is the fact that we've been working on the RNA technology for a decade. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like the technology was new. And I right. think sometimes people misconstrue that. That was someone's kind of life work, Correct. just finally fi- kind of finding the right place. It, when you look at the Moderna vac- vaccine, uh, they had they had been working on an RNA vaccine for other diseases for mm-hmm. a long time. And what they did with COVID is they completely shifted all of that work they had been doing on a different virus and shifted it all to SARS-CoV-2, which is the COVID-19 virus. Uh, so it was not new. I think the other thing people need to understand is that there were no skip steps. I mean, yes, we did this in an incredible amount of time, but there were phase one, phase two, phase three trials as we Mm -hmm. would have done in any other drug or vaccine trial. I mean, and then the last point of 
in a usual vaccine trial, the disease just isn't that prevalent. And so when you do a randomized trial like mm -hmm. we did, where we have placebo and some people get sugar water in, injected into the arm and other people get the vaccine, then you have to wait for people to get infected. Right. But because of the, the, the big surge in the United States in the, in the late summer and fall of last year and across the world, because these were global vaccine trials, we had many people getting infected. And, and that meant that it didn't take that long mm -hmm. before we could absolutely prove that the vaccine was effective because the people that got vaccinated just weren't getting infected and all the people that got sugar water were and absolutely getting infected. And allowed those results to yeah. come in. That's so fascinating. I'm curious, kind of thinking through vaccines and the booster, what the process was like for researchers and scientists to determine um, the timeline of when a booster would be appropriate. Is that coming from just those participants testing every day, seeing you know the the amount of breakthrough cases? Yeah, it's it's coming from two sources of data. Pa part of it is coming from I told you there's national mm -hmm. registries and studies going on in Israel and Great Britain, and and so and Israel in particular had had already reached herd immunity. They had the, the majority of their population had been vaccinated, and so they had a very nice and mostly with the, the Pfizer vaccine, and so then Delta swept through. So they had a very nice uh, kind of controlled population mm -hmm. study there. And so part of it was they were seeing and, and able to demonstrate that the further you got away from your vaccination, mm -hmm. the higher likelihood that you might have a breakthrough case. Um, it is important to remember that even though we were seeing breakthrough cases, we were still not seeing increased deaths okay. from from the Delta variant. Uh, so there was still protection. Mm -hmm. uh, and that'll come up when we talk about the FDA approval. Uh, and, but we were seeing more people that were fully vaccinated start to get start to get symptomatic COVID. Um, so that's part of that. And then you can look and see, okay, what's the magic number? And you know, there was talk about whether it's eight months and now the FDA has, has approved it for six months. Six okay. months after you complete it, they re are recommending a booster for certain populations. Um, and then also there is, you're right, there's a ongoing, people that participated in the first trial, there's a group of those people that are continuing giving blood at intervals where we monitor their antibody levels. And so there's data on when your antibody levels start to go down and where we think those antibody levels are low enough to, to mm -hmm. be concerning for you. So it was both. Both of those mm -hmm. sources of data were used to determine get the that length magic on when you need the booster. It's interesting. So what is the current status of FDA approval on the booster? So the FDA has given an, an emergency use authorization for a mm -hmm. booster for the Pfizer uh, uh, vaccine. Um, they, it's based on the data we just kind of discussed. It's approved for three groups. Okay. It already had been approved for immune compromised patients. Mm -hmm. They were already receiving a booster based on data. Uh, the three groups are those above 65, and we know that the elderly don't form as a robust an immune response to the vaccine. We knew that from the beginning. And then we also now, because they don't form as robust immune response, we know that their antibodies seem to taper off more quickly. Okay. Uh, and the elderly are at increased risk. Mm -hmm of having complications from COVID. So that made a lot of sense. So it's 65 and above, six months out, that group they're recommending, uh, they're approving it for. The other group is those from 18 to 64 
that have uh, risk risk factors for severe COVID. So okay. these would be someone with obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Um, so we know that there's certain groups and populations of people that are have increased risk to end up in the ICU or have a severe COVID case, uh, mm-hmm. people with respiratory disorders like COPD. So for that group, it's also recommending the booster, again, six months after they completed the first cycle. And then the last group that, that it, it, it uh, authorized uh, uh, usage for is healthcare, um, well, people in jobs mm-hmm. like healthcare workers who put them at increased risk to contract, the, to come across the virus, to, uh, to contract the virus. So if a person received the Moderna vaccine originally, could they get a Pfizer booster shot? Yeah, currently the Moderna has has their data and it mm-hmm. does wean also with time um, where that interval is, whether it's eight months for them for the Moderna versus six months for Pfizer. I think that still has to be determined. The Moderna has to turn their data over to the FDA. All their data needs okay. to be reviewed. So they are doing that. Moderna does feel like they're going to need a booster shot too and they are turning that data over for, for review by the FDA. Um, so currently, if you've received the Moderna shot, there's no booster that's mm-hmm. approved for you okay. uh, or recommended. So it's, it's for you, it's stay tuned. Um, but it's in the in the works. But it's in the works. And it's, and and Johnson and Johnson just announced last week that they they have data that they will need a booster, mm-hmm. and that if in fact when they received their booster, remember Johnson and Johnson was one the shot. One. Mm-hmm. So now they have good strong data that if you get a second shot that you'll get a much more robust antibody response. Uh, and so they're putting through their proposal to the FDA also for approval for their booster shot. So we know it's approved for those certain groups. Um, if we kind of think back to, I guess, the last last week or the week before, um, you know, in, in the news it was FDA does not approve booster for general yeah. population. Um, what does that mean and can you explain why they would have not approved that? Yeah, I think, look, there is, unfortunately, there is a lot of confusion because there was a statement made by by the administration, the White House administration, about a booster for everyone Mm -hmm. before all the due process had taken place. I think the FDA scientists really took a lot of time thinking through what's best for the population Mm -hmm. and public health. And and one of the things, with with the scarce resource with right. with the vaccine that is that is relatively scarce, and of course they also consider safety uh, uh, considerations. We do know that if you're a young and healthy uh, person who've been fully vaccinated, uh, that even though the data shows you're at increased risk to get a symptomatic COVID, mm-hmm. you're still very protected from death or hospitalization even eight months and nine months. Or even severe removed. symptoms, it seems like, yes. know, more mild symptoms. and even hospitalization. Uh, and because of that, the FDA kind of felt that that group was still, even though it's, it's not as protected of getting a mild case of COVID, they were protected enough mm-hmm. uh, from the serious complications of COVID that they didn't think at this time uh, it was needed. And the data didn't support that. Um, Do you think we could reach a state, you know, later on where they maybe roll out, roll it out to other groups. You know, if you're healthy, you don't need a booster after the six months, but maybe you might need one after X amount of time. 
Yeah, I, I do think boosters are still coming, even for the healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, I think we need more data. Mm-hmm. I think we need, we want to make science-based and data-based decisions, and I applaud the FDA and the CDC for that. Um, and so I think we just need to stay tuned. But but I do think for Moderna, for Johnson Johnson, and even for healthy uh, people that receive Pfizer, that eventually there will be a booster. Great. I look forward to that. <laughs> So another vaccine news, Pfizer recently announced um, that the vaccine is safe for that age range of 5 to 11. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and what that process would look like of seeing that kind of start to roll out? Yeah. Look, this, this, was, this was a very important data because uh, one of the things we know is that, especially before Delta, that children with the original COVID, SARS-CoV-2 COVID virus didn't seem to spread it as much. And it's one of the reasons we were pretty successful in opening schools last year um, um, because kids didn't carry it in the nasopharynx as much as adults did. They didn't spread it to each other as much as adults did. We weren't 100% sure why, but with that original variant, it didn't spread among kids as much. Mm -hmm. And we didn't see a lot of serious cases among kids. Um, And so that was good news. Unfortunately, with Delta, Delta changed all that. Delta does have high viral loads in the nasopharynx of kids. It does spread among kids rather is easily. Again, another one of those mutations, a variant, mm-hmm. that evolved to be more infectious, in this case, among kids. So that's where the vaccine becomes very important for 5 to 11. Um, and we are seeing more serious cases uh, um, among the Delta variant in kids. So there's a real concern if you're a parent that that your kid could catch COVID and have a serious complication or even death from it. Um, the good news is that um, the vaccine does seem to be safe and effective in the five to eleven, and that's the data that 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 Pfizer is submitting to the FDA. Mm-hmm. We were part of that clinical trial on the age group from five to eleven. The neutralizing antibodies you get at a much lower dose. That was one of the things they had to figure out for kids. They don't need the adult right. dose, like everything That's else, right? Uh, kids, are, kids are not just little people. They, uh, they're different. <laughs> uh, um, and so we, we had to figure out the right dose for kids, and it's a much, much, much less dose mm-hmm. that gives you the equivalent immune antibody response. So. But they still have the first and second dose? Is, is it still a two-part? It's still a two-part but with with, with much decreased dose uh, for each. Um, I think it's really cool that Oxner was able to be a part of that and participate in that trial. Um, was the was it similar to kind of what we saw in the adult trials in terms of what happens after you receive the vaccine? Maybe that arm soreness. Yeah, yeah. The side it, effects. Were, were, is there anything different? No, the side effects were pretty similar. It's just obviously much more complicated to do a a pediatric trial, and and parents are obviously very concerned uh, mm-hmm. and very protective. Uh, but I must say, I'm very proud of our community, as many parents knew how important it was to participate in these vaccine trials in that age group. And, and we had an incredible response for the community. In fact, we had to turn people away. We, uh, really? We more people than we actually had uh, uh, slots for in the research trial. That is amazing. That was good. Very proud of our community. Um, so that, yeah, I, I really like that element of Oxner being involved in that, in that research trial and the creation of that, or bringing that to fruition. Um, what other kind of clinical trials or research are we currently doing at Oxner? Yeah, so Oxford is involved, uh, in, you know, in 
the NIH has an accelerated treatment trials that they're called active, and there's one through five. Mm-hmm. Uh, Asher has been involved in all five of them throughout the past year, and we continue to be very, very involved in, in any NIH new treatment trial. And these treatment trials run the gambit from preventative trials like the vaccine trials to the monoclonal antibodies, they were part of the active trials um, that also have shown good efficacy. Um, to anti-inflammatories, mm-hmm. uh, which which we've now uh, have re- like tocilizumab, which have good efficacy data. To antivirals like remdesivir. Um, to anticoagulation. Um, so the treatment trials run the, ga- the the gamut, and we've been involved in all of them. So we're proud of that, and we'll continue to do that and work with the NIH. We're also doing some really cool things with Pfizer. Uh, so Pfizer uh, has developed an app, uh, and we're the leading research institution in partnership with Pfizer on this. It's called the ACRIS trial. And, okay. and Dr. Edmund Kawagami, he deserves a shout out. He's done a lot of great work on this. And basically, if you enroll in the trial, you download the app. You never actually see any r- clinical trial personnel personally it's all digital and mm-hmm. trials and we can, and you can enroll from anywhere in the United States you consent online um, you talk into your app daily uh, every day and if you forget to talk into your app they'll send you a text say hey you forgot <laughs> to talk to your app it'll detect changes in your voice and if it detects changes in your voice that suggest an upper respiratory tract infection you have a nasal swab kit at home. You actually go swab yourself and mail it in, and we look for flu, RSV, and COVID. And we've now enrolled, you know, almost 4,000 people in that trial. Wow. It'll continue through the winter. Our goal is to get to around 8,000. And we're, you know, we're detecting some upper respiratory tract infections. So it'll be interesting to see if the app works. Would you say it's kind of a, a move towards more not self-managed care, but just more involvement in your in your own care and in managing your own health? Yeah, I think one, one of the things that Dr. Milani likes to talk a lot about is the patient activation. Or another way to look at it is patient engagement, meaning when you're involved in these digital programs, this is exactly what you just said. You tend to pay a little bit more attention and are more involved in your own health care. And we know that as a physician, that when patients are more involved in their own care, we get better outcomes. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think, I, I think technology leverages patients to be more of an advocate for their own health. And as we wrap up, I, I want to ask, you know, you've seen a lot of things working, research, academics, being involved in a lot. Um, what has been just a standout or, or meaningful moment for you during this pandemic and the work you and your team have been doing? Oh, there's so many meaningful moments. And I mean, the, the academic team has just done an incredible job uh, throughout throughout uh, this. And, you know, from them pivoting all of, all of their efforts and putting them towards COVID trials, really mm-hmm. at kind of the stop of the dime, from the from the outcomes research doing the, developing the modeling and, and how, how important that modeling has been to our patients um, and to our physicians. Um, but I guess... You know, if if I had to think through one of the things I'm most proud of is is that first study, that New England Journal study that showed the disproportionate burden among COVID and African-Americans that later has been repeated by many others. And also Hispanics have now been shown to have the same disproportionate burden mm-hmm. throughout the United States. That really has started a conversation around 
health disparities. And Auctioner really stepped up there too. So we formed the Auctioner Xavier Institute of Health Equity and Research to get a better handle on health disparities and why do we see those disparities in Louisiana. Um, But one of the things Auctioner does very good is we do more than just ask why. Mm -hmm. We also say, how can we make it better? Uh, and, and that implementation sciences and trying to develop new ways to deliver care so that we eliminate health disparities. That's a direct mm-hmm. outgrowth of, of the Ashton research. Um, and I, I'm very proud of that because that work is going to go on f- for decades. And, and It really is amazing. And I completely agree that the, the research you're putting forth, you and your team, we're seeing tangible outcomes from that. We're seeing yeah. tangible change. So that's absolutely amazing. Um, I'm going to ask one more question. I know that was supposed to be the last one, but um, how can people get involved in research trials or participate or, you know, just offer, you know, to be a, a person in a trial? Yeah. So, the, so we have uh, the Ashner Academic website and we mm-hmm. can, we can through the podcast and release that where you can go and learn about what are our active clinical trials and, 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 and volunteer and participate that. We are going to also be doing a better, we, we hope to do a better job of going to communities mm-hmm. and allowing com- and educating communities about these are the important trials that are going on. And because the truth is these trials benefit us all. And it's really important that we have diverse populations represented in those trials. You know, the vaccine trial was, it was just so critical. Mm-hmm. We didn't want 90% of the participants in the vaccine trial to be white. Right. Because uh, it wouldn't speak to what, how do Hispanics and how do African Americans, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, our communities are so important to partner with research, and so we'll have the website. But I, that is one of the ongoing projects that we're really going to increase our efforts in is that partnering with our communities, so that our communities can participate in these important trials. And I think it's interesting too because with the pandemic, it really brought healthcare to a very the very forefront of a lot of conversation. You know, obviously healthcare has always been an ongoing conversation, but really that that focus there and, and people's interest in participating in the new trials or participating in change. So I do think that there's a lot of people out there who will want to get involved more so than they have before. Yeah, I agree. And, and um, look, I think it's made us all much more conscious about public health, mm-hmm. uh, viruses, uh, and uh, healthcare. What I hope... You know, this, what we started will continue, and that is that we don't take steps backwards like the pre-enlightenment period where people made associations without science, and that we continue to move forward and that we regain the trust among some segments in our population that have lost the trust of their physicians, lost the trust of scientists, um, for whatever reason, for whatever happened over the last couple of years that, that created that, and that we continue to go forward and realize that the better life we live today in the United States and across the world is a direct product of the scientists and the physicians and the doctors that have done research over the years to treat diseases, to cure diseases, to eliminate viruses like polio from the face of the earth. Um, it's a direct result of the science we do, and so hopefully... This embraces, the community embraces that. And like to your point, the community comes along with us and joins us on these clinical trials and this this search for science and truth. 
It's definitely going to be really exciting to see. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Swanee. And I know I speak for everyone when I say thank you and your team for the amazing work y'all are doing. And we are excited to see what you guys do next. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Research and education have been vital throughout this pandemic, and I'm so glad Dr. Swanee was able to share the latest insights with us today. If you'd like to get involved with Oxner Research Programs, visit research.oxner.org. Thanks again for joining us today. I'm Alex Godian, and we'll see you next time on Innovation Health.